my spirit's been circling its wagons around one Bible verse for the last three and a half months. From the book of Psalms, the 116th Psalm, verse 7. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has been good to you. Return, O my soul, to your rest. If I'm being honest, and I try to be most of the time, rest is not my A game. I'm not a napper. I'm a chorer. I like to do things. Don't get me wrong. I can binge on some Netflix over a weekend, and if there's college football on, I will definitely have my feet up on the ottoman, but mostly I like to go. I like to do. And the psalmist, it's interesting, the psalmist just doesn't care. Return, O my soul, to your rest. It's actually a command. It's a gentle command, but it's a command nonetheless. Return, O my soul. I woke up Monday morning. Our daughter, Mariah, she's the seventh grader. She wasn't feeling well on Sunday, so we decided we'd keep her home from school on Monday. Kristen's working. She has to be there by 8, so she's hustling around. I'm trying to get the older two, the high school students, up out of bed and off running. And for whatever reason, no matter how high, loud I raise my voice, they just don't seem to move any faster. So I'm kind of getting frustrated. And then Ava, she wakes up. She realizes Mariah's not going to school that day. She lost on her was the sick part, so she just starts bawling, I don't want to go to school either, I want to stay home, and I'm, I, I didn't probably, I didn't respond out of my best self in that moment. We finally get the high school students out the door, Lydia tries to start her car, nothing happens, which I took as divine retribution for my immaculate ignition story I told you about last week. She comes running into the house, Dad, my car won't start. Kristen's already in one car, so I said, get in the car with mom, and she'll take you in. I don't know, my car won't start, and she, just get in the car with mom. I raised my voice. She runs off. Now her car's blocking my car in the single-lane driveway that we have, so I run to the comm lines. They're in Germany for the year, so they told me, I, they asked if I would drive their car every once in a while to keep it running. So I'm walking over to their house, but it's all, their cul-de-sac is all torn up with road construction, which seems to be a theme around Holland. Right about now, I'm hoping there's not pipes in the front of their driveway or piles of sand or whatever it is. I finally get Ava off to school, maybe screaming a little bit, almost on time. I get back to my house. My back is sweating. The dog is barking, and I focus my attention on a sermon from Psalm 116, Return, O my soul, to your rest. Ever had a Monday morning like that one? Or maybe that's just kind of the way it is in life for you. Return, O oh my soul, to your rest. Rest isn't our A game. We hurry around, we scurry about, we get things done, and the psalmist is inviting us, actually commanding us to a different way of being. The reasons for our restlessness, Augustine has this great line, you created us, O Lord, for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. There are so many reasons for our restlessness, not just temperament, not just a few circumstances on a Monday morning, not even just the conditions of our world, but actually it's something deeper. It's been going on for a long, long time, this pushing, urging, moving us towards restless. I want you to listen to the story that launched us into restless. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, did God say 
you shall not eat of the fruit of any of the trees that are in the garden. And the woman said, we may freely eat of the fruit of the trees that are in the garden, but God said of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, or you will die. And the serpent said, you will not die, for God knows your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She gave some to her husband also who was with her and he ate and their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze and they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called out to the man, where are, where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you and I was afraid because I'm naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you? You shall not eat of it. And the man said, the woman whom, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. And God said to the serpent, cursed are you. Among all the animals, among all the wild creatures, upon your belly you shall go. The dust of the ground you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. He will strike your head, you will strike his heel. And to the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain, you'll bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to the man, God said, because you've done this, and listened to the voice of your wife, and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall labor over it. Thorns and thistles it shall produce for you. By the sweat of your brow you will eat bread until you return to the ground. You are dust, and to dust you will return. And the man named the woman Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, see, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he may reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat. So the Lord God sent the man from the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and, and east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Genesis chapter 3. That's the story of the fall. The, the fall is so much more than some invisible pressure on us that keeps us from making the right choices. It's not just an ancient obstacle that keeps us from living a pure life. It's so much more than that. The whole creation project is wrapped up in the fall. Nothing is now the way it's supposed to be. It's not just our capacity to choose 
correctly, but everything has been devastated. And the psalmist says, return, O my soul, to your rest. Now wars rage and violence attacks and anxiety ravages and illnesses devour and people yell and morality has no north star. Return, O my soul, to your rest. Rest requires trust. Rest relies on grace. That's how I'd like to move forward to the table with you today. Rest requires trust. Here's this cataclysmic moment in in universal history. Genesis 3, the serpent says to the woman, did God say you may not eat of the fruit of any of the trees that are in the garden? The woman responds rightly, we may freely eat of the fruit of the trees that are in the garden, but God said of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, or you will die. And the serpent says, and here's the moment, you'll not die. For God knows your eyes will be open and you'll become like God. God's lying to you. God's not trustworthy. God's trying to manage you and control you. You can have it now. You can have it here, today. Take, take, take of the fruit. And to be fair, the serpent wasn't wrong. It wasn't a bald-faced lie. The story ends, this is verse 22, Then the Lord God said, see, the man has become like one of us. It's not so much the end that was in question. It was the way that the serpent was manipulating. You can have it now. You can have it here, right, today. Take it. Take it. And God's saying, do you trust me? Will you trust me? I know a better way. And yet we've been taken still. We just keep taking and stretching ourselves beyond our limits and grasping and grabbing and try to build for ourselves a life. And God's saying, will you trust me? I know a better way. I've been reading this book this summer titled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by a guy named John Mark Comer, former pastor out west turned sort of consultant. He quotes a Catholic theologian, Ronald Rollheiser, so much of our unhappiness, and I don't think it's out of bounds to say restlessness. So much of our unhappiness comes from comparing our lives, our friendships, our loves, our commitments, our duties, our bodies, and our sexuality to some idealized and non-Christian vision of things. When that happens, and it does, our tensions begin to drive us mad, in this case, to a cancerous restlessness cancerous restlessness. God's saying, do you trust me? I know a better way. Will you trust me? And some of you are thinking, yeah, but my kid is sick, and you're asking me to trust you? You're thinking, but my spouse died, and now you want me to trust you? You're thinking, my heart breaks for so many things. I've been asking you for so long to take care of it, and you don't seem to be doing anything, and now you want me to trust you? And I get it. Those are good, important questions to ask. But if you don't mind a little nudge, push back a little bit. The, the alternative to not trusting is this cancerous restlessness. That doesn't change. Your lack of trust in the living God does not change the circumstances of your pain. It just relocates the pressure on you. You've got to. You must. You have to. All the while, God, do you, will you trust me? Do you trust me? 
And God, the best expression of God's trustworthiness is his own son, Jesus Christ, who takes on the pain of the whole world. He takes it on himself. He knows what you're going through. He suffered and died to forgive and rose from the grave to redeem all things. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Now, Richard Mao wrote a book titled Uncommon Decency, which I highly recommend. The Bible tells us that we cannot really flourish without working hard at developing our capacity for trust. This is why the Bible places such a strong emphasis on covenant. To enter into a covenant is to form a commitment based on trust. When God insisted that Adam and Eve not eat the fruit of one of the trees in the garden, he was asking them to keep covenant with him. Trust me, he was saying, I know what's best for you. The trust me part is crucial to the story. It was here that the serpent attacked God's credibility. Did God say, he asked Eve, don't believe God. He just wants to show you who's boss. When our first parents failed to trust God, they got, they got us all into deep trouble. Trust and commitment are basic to who we are as human beings. Return, oh my soul, to your rest. Rest requires trust in a God who loves you? Who's for you? Maybe, maybe each step of the way isn't clearly laid out before you, but will you trust me? Think of the freedom you have when you can trust. It's not all on you. It's not all about you. God is. God cares. God acts. God does. Return, oh my soul, to your rest. Rest requires trust. Rest relies on grace. Grace, I hear the word and I think of my daughter Ava, Ava Grace. Makes me think of our pastor Anna, who's also named Anna Grace. They share the same birthday, August 28. You should name your middle name, your child Grace. Or that song, I love that song, Grace. Every time I bump into someone named Grace, I start singing, Grace, Grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace, rest relies on grace. There's this stunning scene at the end of Genesis 3. The whole world's just been torn to shreds. The whole thing's now spiraling in chaos, a chaos we still experience now. And then there's this. It's like, it's like the clouds part and, 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 the, and the sun shines. It's like oxygen just got put back in the room. That the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. The Lord God, the seamstress God, made garments of skins for the man and his wife and clothed them grace. They had been hiding behind their own shame. The serpent was right. Your eyes will be open, and their eyes were open, but what they knew was their nakedness. And it came with all kinds of shame, so they started hiding themselves in shame. They started hiding themselves from one another. They started hiding themselves from God. And God clothed them. God clothed this, this, the, the almighty seamstress, made garments of skins for the man and his wife, and clothed them grace, which if you're willing to see it this way, is only a foreshadowing and a foretaste of Jesus Christ himself who clothes us in his righteousness. 
This is why the Apostle Paul would say, your life is hid with Christ in God. So the psalmist prays, return, O my soul, to your rest. This is why Isaiah would prophesy, you will be clothed in the garments of salvation. So the psalmist prays, return, O my soul, to your rest. This is why the gospel announces, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, everything's become new. Return, O my soul, to your rest. It relies on grace, and God is gracious. He clothed them in garments of skins. Grace. It's a good word. Grace. What if, what if a couple of us, what if a few of us, embraced grace? What would happen to the anxiety that wreaks havoc on our spirit? What, what, what would happen to the bitterness that we hold on to? What, what, how would we engage people differently if we embraced grace? Uh, I was reading this book, What's So Amazing About Grace, this week by Philip Yancey. A friend of mine, riding a bus to work, overheard a conversation between the young woman sitting next to him and her neighbor across the aisle. The woman was reading Scott Peck's The Road Less Traveled. The book, that book has stayed on the New York Times bestsellers list longer than any other. What are you reading, asked the neighbor. A book a friend gave me. She said it changed her life. Oh yeah, what's it about? I'm not sure. Some sort of guide to life. I haven't got very far yet. She began flipping through the book. Here are the chapter titles. Discipline, Love, Grace. The man stopped her. What's grace? I don't know. I haven't gotten to grace yet. I don't know. I haven't got to grace yet. Does it ever feel like that for you? I haven't got to grace yet. I don't know. I haven't got to grace yet. What, what have we made of the Christian faith? What, what, what have we made of the Christian faith if not grace? a list of rules to follow, a behavior to have, an ethic to hold. All of those things are important, of course, but devoid of grace? Uh, George Herbert, the poet, ah, what is man if devoid of grace? Yancey goes on in that same book to say, Christianity's best gift to the whole world is grace. What if a few of us embraced grace? How would that change our lives? How would that change your heart? What if it's true? What if it's true? God is so gracious. He made garments of skins for the man and his wife and clothed them. I was sitting on Wednesday over at Phelps Hall with Paul Borsma. We were having breakfast together earlier in the morning. Uh, Paul has known me. Uh, do you know Paul? Paul? Paul has known me longer than I've known me. Uh, the Browns and the Borsma families have this long-standing relationship. He knew me when I was a little kid playing basketball for Holland High with a vicious tenacity that bordered on criminality, and he, and he loved me anyway. He'd greet me in church on Sunday mornings, give me a hug. And then, then when I became a freshman at Hope, I sort of floundered away, and around my freshman year, I took so many of the same classes twice because of my activities my freshman year, Wednesday nights and Friday nights and Saturday nights and Sunday nights too, and Paul walked with me anyway. 
He was with me during the breakups and the existential crises and all of the rejections from the grad schools I actually didn't want to go to anyway. And he, and he loved me anyway. He, he actually married Kristen and me, so he did the premarital counseling for us, and he loves me anyway. The man knows me. Uh, when we were out west thinking about moving to Holland, it was a Friday morning. I was bringing the kids off to donuts at the donut shop, so I parked the car in the parking lot, brought the girls in, and called Paul to discern together about this move to Holland. Ten years ago, we're celebrating the anniversary of our reestablishment over the next couple of weeks. So I'm calling Paul, and he's, he knows me. And he says, if you come to Holland, I would, I would be honored for you to be my pastor. He knows me. He, he just retired as a senior chaplain at Hope College after like three decades of campus ministries. How many students has he walked with? I, I did a little math in my head, like 30,000 different students he's interacted with. And I bet you he remembers all of their names. College students are awesome. They're, they're full of gifts and creativity and curiosities and great questions. They're also, let's be honest, they do what college students do, which isn't always the best thing to do. And he loves them anyway. So we're sitting at Phelps on Wednesday morning, and all these college students are giving him hugs. And by the way, I, I don't have his permission to share this story, so don't tell him. All these college students are giving him hugs, and I'm thinking, How, who is this guy? And then it dawned on me. I, I, I think I figured out his secret. Whenever he would serve communion or take communion, whether at the gathering on Sunday night at Hope, at Hope College or here at Pillar on a Sunday morning, every time he hands over the bread and every, or every time he lifts up the cup, he says the same thing. All by grace. He says as people come down the aisle to receive the elements, all by grace to the, to, the, to the spouses who couldn't quite talk to each other that morning. All by grace to the student overwhelmed by the, the, by the complexities of the world. All by grace to the single one whose spouse died. All by grace. What if that's true? Rest relies on grace. What if just a few of us embraced grace? It's Christianity's best gift to the whole world. So return, O oh my soul, to your rest. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. If you believe Jesus is Lord and acknowledge him as Savior, you're welcome to participate in communion wherever you are, maybe bread and wine or crackers and juice. If you're not at that place, if you're just sort of checking things out, this is not meant to be awkward. I'd love to hear from you. Maybe you could email me, john, J-O-N, at pillarchurch.com. Hear the psalmist's prayer. Return, O my soul, to your rest. <laughs>